Today we're uh, coming to the end of our study of Colossians. Um, I've said to uh, several of you over the last few weeks as this date has been coming, uh, there's part of me that would just like to just start over next week. Uh, It's been a a great experience um, to go through this great letter and uh, today, nevertheless, at least for now, we come to the end of it, so I'd like to ask you to open your Bible uh, to Colossians chapter 4. We'll uh, be reading from verse 2 through the end of the letter, verse 18. If you don't uh, have a Bible with you, you can find the text printed for you in the uh, bulletin. So let's give our attention to God's Word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. For the first two chapters of this letter, Paul was completely and exclusively and constantly focused on who Jesus is, who he is in and of himself, and on what he has done for his people in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And Paul does that for a very specific and intended purpose, and it's this. He knows that for the Colossians and for you, and for every Christian who ever has lived or will live, the most important thing in the Christian life, the thing that will sustain you in the Christian life, is to focus all of your attention and energy and life and desire and trust 
on Jesus Christ. It sounds so simple, and yet we forget it and, and turn away from it so easily. And so Paul spends the first two chapters, not only of this letter, it's his pattern in all of his letters, to convince us absolutely of the grace and glory and all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ to restore sinners into God's house and kingdom for his glory and for our joy and fullness and flourishing and life and peace. So this is Paul's approach always. He always begins with the indicatives of what God has done in Christ before he ever moves on to the imperatives of what we're, of what we're to do in response to him. That's his pattern here in Colossians. We've been seeing it. Because in chapters 3 and 4, he goes on and he talks about our new identity in Christ and how it's to be worked out, both in terms of killing sin and of cultivating and bringing to life those things which are consistent with who we are in Jesus. And today in the first few verses of our passage, we'll see, we've seen as we've just read it, that in these verses 2 through 6, Paul has some final instructions for this church as he concludes his letter to them. Now, as we say to you all the time, no one, no one can ever become a Christian. No one can ever be saved by doing the things that are commanded in the Bible. No one can ever be saved by keeping these instructions. The only reason, if you're a Christian, the only reason you're a Christian is because God chose you. That he saved you out of the grave of your own sin when you were dead in it. If you're a Christian, it's only because your sin was charged to Christ and punished in him when he died on the cross. If you're a Christian, it's only because his righteousness, the perfection of his life, has been imputed or credited to you and received only by faith. If you're a Christian, it's not because of your response to God. It's only and always because of his grace to you when you weren't looking for him. So the question is, why does God give us these instructions? Why in these letters do we, in the first half, uh, hear so much about Christ and his accomplishment and his grace, and then we get to the second half of the letter, whichever one it is. It's certainly true of this one. And there's so much instruction but we haven't left the gospel. It's not as if God's put another hat on as he speaks to us in the second half of these letters. Why does he give us these instructions? It's because he intends for you to grow. And there are certain ways in which that growth happens. Think about a plant. Uh, you can't give a plant life. But there are things you can do to cause it to grow, to help it to grow. And the same is true in the Christian life. You can't give yourself spiritual life. If you're a Christian, God's already given that to you. When Jesus says you must be born again, he's saying, uh, okay, I want you to go over there and be born again. You go do that. He speaks in the passive. This must happen to you. There's something supernatural from above that God has to do to you or you'll never understand what I'm talking about. Uh, if you're a Christian, God gives you life. And then he gives you instructions to cause that life to grow, like you would cause a plant, help a, a plant to grow. So you don't keep these things in order to be saved, but if you are a Christian, then you'll obey the Lord's commands because you love him and you want to grow and you want to serve him. So that's how we need to think about these commands in scripture, even as we come to these instructions this morning. So what we're going to do is spend, uh, it's a fairly lengthy passage. We're going to spend most of our time on verses two through six and really uh, use the rest of it as, we, as a conclusion 
as we look at this text. Really, we um, believe it or not, could preach quite a few sermons, I think, uh, on this passage. But we won't. So let's look uh, at, this, at this passage that we've read this morning. Because we've been talking about gospel transformation, right? That when Christ comes into the life of a person, he really changes that life. It doesn't happen instantaneously. I mean, there is instantaneous change. There's a new nature. But then there's all this long, slow change that happens over the course of But it's really change. And we see that again here. And, and what we see, I think, is as Paul is, is concluding this letter, he's giving two final instructions. He's calling us to a life of, of constant prayer and a life of wise witness. Okay, so uh, a life of constant prayer, a life of wise and gracious witness. So let's, let's look at that together. Uh, first, there's this call to prayer. You see that in verse 2? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continual prayer, steadfast, watchful, thankful prayer. I had not had this thought until a few years ago, just a few short years ago, and I wonder if this would be a helpful thought for some of you. Do you have you ever thought that the most important thing you could ever do with your mouth is to pray? That the number one reason why God has given you a mouth, I mean, lang- just the fact that we have human language is pretty, pretty amazing. The, the number one reason that God has given you a mouth and a tongue and language is so you can talk to him. And to then, secondly, talk to one another about him, mostly. But the, the, the number one thing you can do with your mouth is to pray. I mean, you, so you look, and, and therefore, uh, when the Spirit of Christ comes into a person's life, what, what would you expect to see happen? That tongue is set free to talk to God. It's set free to talk to God in prayer, and it's set free in wise and gracious witness to the world. Because it's just another aspect of God making you in Christ what you were always intended to be, right? As part of his image. So Paul calls them to a life of prayer. If you read through the book of Acts, one of the things that you'll notice as a uh, constant hallmark of the early Christians is prayer. They're continually, in all kinds of circumstances, pouring out their hearts to God, pouring out their needs to Him, their fears to Him, uh, their hearts to Him, and seeing God provide for them and protect them and strengthen them in answer to their prayers. And then you continue to read through the New Testament, and I don't think there's even one exception to this. In every one of the New Testament letters, there is exhortation to pray always. Or, or in some cases, and, or, there is some word of how the the apostle who's writing that letter has been in all of his prayers, always praying for all of the saints. So there's this praying always going on everywhere in the New Testament. And that is just part of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in and works. That there's prayer, there's continual steadfast prayer. And so here's another example of it. Devote yourselves to prayer is what some translations say. That's actually better. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stick with it. Give yourself fully to it. Here's the, here's the thing. Do you remember the, the purpose of this letter? You've got these Christians who want to grow, and so they've started opting for these counterfeit measures of, of growth that are actually hollow. They can't do the job. And so Paul's coming back to them and saying, your susceptibility 
your susceptibility to those false spiritual uh, strategies is the result of your being blinded to the sufficiency of Christ. So let me help you see him again. That's the same reason for which he introduces prayer. Because what he's saying is, if you have become so weak that you've lost sight of the glory of Christ and you're not leaning into him and walking in him, then Paul knows something else about your life. He knows that you're not praying. And he knows that the only way, please listen to this, the only way that you will ever continue as a Christian is in prayer. You will not, you cannot, it is impossible, it is impossible to be a mature Christian and not to have a life that's increasingly filled with prayer. It's, that's just how God has designed it that way. It cannot happen. So some of you, if you're wondering, if you've been wondering why you're not kind of getting along in the Christian life and growing and so forth, and, and yet at the same time you can look at your own life and see that there's no prayer Please let God, in His grace and kindness and rebuke to you, help you to make the connection. Because Paul is, is telling the Colossians that the only way they can live in Christ is to live in prayer. Why would we ever? Prayer is dependence on Christ, right? Why would we ever try to live out our lives as Christians without constant daily dependence on Christ and fellowship with Him? But we do it all the time. We're just, we're foolish. We forget, we lose sight. So we need to hear these words reminding us of the necessity of devoting ourselves to prayer, being watched. That's why he tells us to devote ourselves to it, because it doesn't just automatically happen. Give yourselves to this work, he says. Now, if you find, here's, here's what I think is true. Anytime any group of Christians uh, is addressed about prayer, what do we immediately, every one of us, what do we immediately begin to feel? bad. Because there's not one of us in the room that is sitting here thinking, I, you know, as much as I appreciate this reminder to devote myself to prayer, I've actually really done that. I've really, my life is characterized by, by prayer. Now, I, I actually do think that for many of you, that's a lot more true than it is for some of us. So there's growth. And if, and if God has helped you to really grow and your life is filled with prayer, Thank him for that. Give him credit for that and, and persevere. Continue to grow. There's plenty of room still. But most of us, when we hear instruction about prayer and its, its necessity for the Christian life, we immediately begin to think, yeah, there's one more thing that I don't, I, yeah, I'm terrible at prayer. And yet, here's the thing. Often we don't know what to do next. And I think there's something that Paul says here that actually could be really helpful for you. And it's what he says about being thankful in prayer. Continue in it, watchful with thanksgiving. Now, why, why would I say that's a key? Because usually, when we stop praying, it's because prayer has started to feel like really a burden. It's something I know I should do. It's not something I really want to do. It's not something I really know how to do. I, I feel... I don't really feel like I mean it, but I know I should. But how long is that feeling, how long is that as a motive going to sustain you in prayer? Not very long. 
So, so why is Paul's comment about the importance of thankfulness in prayer potentially a really helpful key for you? Because here, here's the thing. If prayer has become just a burden and a task and something that just sits on you because you know you should do it and you don't, what have you lost sight of? Do you know what you lost sight of at this point? You've lost sight of who God is. You've lost sight of, of how great he is, how, how amazing it is that through Jesus, he has given you access to him with boldness and with confidence and with joy that the blood of Jesus Christ has brought you into the presence of God Almighty, that he's your father in heaven, that he, at, at, on the one hand, sovereignly rules the whole universe, and yet in some mysterious way does that through the instrumentality of your prayers. And to begin to think that, God, I've lost sight of your grace. I've lost sight of how glorious you are. Well, what is it that's going to bring that back into your heart and into your mind? That's exactly what Paul says here. Thankfulness, thanksgiving. So for some of you where prayer has slid, has slid kind of out the door and in the rest of your Christian life with it, this is a great way back for you to hear God through, through Paul saying to you, why don't you begin, why don't you begin with giving thanks to God? Why don't you begin to return to him through, down the path of considering how kind he's been to you? In every part of your life, but especially how kind he's been to you in Christ. And then what begins to happen in your heart? Your whole heart actually gets, starts to be changed and softened and renewed and, and your pulse picks up a little bit, spiritually speaking, or maybe even actually. And you begin to feel joy again and amazement, a sense of wonder at who God is and what he's done for you. So Paul is saying... Steadfast, watchful, thankful prayer. This is what will keep us growing. It's a great way to, to, to close this letter. You know, it, this is what will keep us growing and maturing as God's people. Just consistent prayer, thankfulness to God, praise to God. Sometimes that's one of the hardest things for us to do in prayer is actually just think for a long time about what God's like and not to go immediately to our list. But what if the list was mostly about what God's like? How, how, how glorious he is, how, how thankful we are for his mercy. It's absolutely life-changing. But then Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4. He doesn't just say, pray steadfastly, devote yourselves to it, be watchful, be thankful. But he goes on to tell them what they should be praying for. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Pray that we'll be able, that I'll be able to continue to preach the very thing that got me here. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Right, so this is the Paul who is under house arrest. We find that at the end of the book of Acts. He's in Rome. He, he's rented a house at his own expense. People are able to come and go, and without hindrance, he preaches the kingdom of God for two years. All the while hoping to be set free, hoping to go to Spain, hoping to continue to preach the gospel where it's never been preached. Here's the, here's the Paul, this pioneering missionary, this guy who has evangelized the Roman Empire of the first century. Who says, please pray for us that, the, that God would open a door for the word. 
please pray for us that God would provide opportunity for us to preach this gospel that's burning inside of us. He wants to do this, but he realizes the only way it can happen is if God opens the doors. The only way that the word gets through is is if God opens the door for the word to get through. Now, why is that? Why, in the first place, why are there doors locked? Why are there doors that are not open to the word already? Because there are human hearts that are locked to God. Doors are locked to the word because men and women and children are locked and closed to God. And you and I can do zero about it. So we have to ask God to do everything which he's pleased to do. So Paul says, please pray, pray that God would open a door for the word and that he would help me to speak it clearly as I ought. This great mystery of Christ, that Jesus Christ came into the world and died for sinners, for Jews and Gentiles, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Help me to make this clear. Pray that God would help me to make this clear. Now, this is a very important part of of our life in the church. And some of you have really entered into this, this opportunity to partner with others in the body of Christ and pray for the spread of the word and the gospel and the kingdom of God. I think the timing is great that you've just come back from Uganda. And to hear that last Lord's Day, there were uh, saints in Christ in Uganda confessing the Apostles' Creed that we confessed this morning, singing praise to the same triune God living under the same word, trusting in the same hope, moving toward the same city in heaven. And so we need to be praying for them, right? To pray that God would continue to open doors for the word in Uganda. To pray that God would continue to open doors for the word everywhere in the world. And to believe that he'll answer those prayers. That is our responsibility. Friends, that is your privilege and responsibility as a Christian to plead with your Father in heaven, with our God, to open doors so that his word will go through and men and women and children will hear the mystery of Christ preached to them and enter into eternal life. This past weekend, last weekend at the men's retreat, one of our men told me about an experience he had when he was in college a number of years ago. There were, uh, there were students who were meeting weekly uh, to pray. And they were meeting specifically to pray for God to open doors for the word in various countries all around the world, particularly in North Africa. And so this larger group of students was broken up into smaller groups that focused on particular countries. And this man who I was talking to at our men's retreat, one of our men here at Redeemer, was part of a group of five or six people who were praying every week on their college campus for the country of Tunisia in North Africa. Praying that God would open a door for the word. Praying that the gospel would get there. Praying that that people would come to know Christ. That somehow the word would be preached there in that country. Do you know what happened during the time in which they were praying for Tunisia? The number of Christians doubled from 100, 100 known Christians to 200. Now why do you think that happened? That's right, prayer. And then over the following years, it it doubled again. So there were at least 500 known Christians in a country where there had been 100 just a few years before. Now that's just one example. That's not all God has done. 
You see, Paul says, pray for us. Pray that God would open a door for the word so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly as we ought. That's not just for Uganda or for Tunisia, but pray for Hal and for me and for Justin Clement and Jeff Thompson and for Tim Kay and for ministers of the gospel that, that are throughout this city and throughout this country and throughout the world. Pray for the clear and powerful preaching of the word. Some of you, probably many of you have heard the well-known story about uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, during his ministry who always credited uh, such a remarkably fruitful preaching ministry and he always gave, uh, under God, he gave credit to the prayers of his congregation for him. And at least on one occasion, took some people who were very interested in hearing his, his secrets. You know, people always go to a, a successful ministry, tell me your secret, you know. Yeah, okay, I'll show you my secret. Let's go down to what he called the boiler room. And here's this room down in the basement of the church building, just filled with Christians who are pleading with God on their knees for the clear and powerful preaching of the word. Now, why do you think Spurgeon was blessed with such a clear and powerful ministry? So Paul is saying, don't just pray for your own desires and needs. Give thanks to God, praise to God, and pray for the success of his word and his gospel. If you and I have not been doing that with urgency and with confidence, then we've really lost sight of something very key in terms of how God's kingdom is coming. It's coming riding in on his word. And we need to pray for that. So Paul calls us to prayer, but he also calls us to be wise in our witness to those who don't know Christ. And we need to try to look briefly at this. But you notice in verses 5 and 6, he says, conduct yourselves or walk wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time, redeeming the time, buying up the time, making the most of every opportunity. So you don't live the Christian life. You don't live the Christian life here in this room. You spend an important part of your Christian life in this room. But you live your Christian life out there. And so, if you're going to persevere as a Christian, in this context of prayer, you need to learn to walk in wisdom out there where you live the Christian life with people who are outside of Christ, outside of the church, outside of the kingdom, outside of heaven. You need to learn to walk wisely before them. So perhaps some of us in this room need to consider according to this word, the way that we've been conducting ourselves around people, who, especially who don't know Christ and what message we're sending to them. Whether we're bringing credit and honor to the name of Christ or discredit and dishonor to the name of Christ. Whether we're giving them yet more ammunition with which to attack and dismiss the church. Or whether we are, as Paul calls us to be, in their lives, something that just won't go away and it's different. And it's unique. It's got salt in it. It's got flavor to it. There's something that it's attention-getting. You see, that's what he says. Walk wisely in your relationships with outsiders and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each one. Very simply, this Paul is saying we need to speak, and again, particularly, you think about the relationships you have with unbelieving people, neighbors, friends, people you work with, family members, 
the way that you speak to those who do not know Christ is incredibly important and effective part of of the ministry that God has given to you as his child, as his people. Because those words that are to come out of our mouths are to have such an effect on people that in some kind of way they remind them or they direct those people to the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's something about him that keeps coming out in our words. And there's something that they're, they're not hearing from other people in the world. They're, you, you realize that every time you go out into the world, there, you, as a Christian, you take something into the world that people are not going to get anywhere else but from a Christian? And to, you've always got words coming out of you. Some of you are quieter than others. I understand that. But you've you got to talk. Everybody talks. So what comes out? Right? What, what, kind, what kind of words do we speak? What's the character of our speech? Well, he says there to be seasoned with salt. There should be something striking about the way that we speak, about the way that you're able to, to, to bring truth to bear in a relationship in such a way that it's not compromised, but neither is it just like slapping somebody over the head or being dismissive or smug or harsh or cowardly. There's something about the way that person speaks to me that is interesting. You see, gracious word, seasoned with salt. Able to answer each person. So that maybe even that person who's watching your life, who's listening to your words, who maybe asks you a question about yourself, or maybe you can tell they're sort of wondering, even though they don't really want to ask you, and you may have an opportunity to follow up those gracious, seasoned words with some explanation of of who Christ is and how he's changed you, how you can change them. Well, then the very last words of this letter. Very interesting. Again, we could go into, there's a lot of great sermons in these last verses, 7 through 17, but uh, really what Paul is doing here, as he says goodbyes, he brings greetings from people who were there with him in Rome, but who are known to the church back in Colossae. He's really showing how the gospel not only turns us upward to God in prayer, and outward to those who don't know Christ and wise and gracious witness. It also turns us inward to the fellowship of God's people where we draw strength because Christ is really changing people's lives. And then the gospel also sends us on, on in our journey, on in our lives, depending, knowing that we live under the grace of God. And that's the last thing. That's the way I would put these last verses. It's the communion of the saints and the promise of grace. You see, when Paul became a, became a Christian, he, he lost everything. He says in Philippians 3.8 that for the sake of Christ, he had suffered the loss of all things. He lost his family, he lost his friends, he lost his status, his possessions, everything. But do you remember the promise? Jesus made a wonderful promise to Peter and to the disciples in Luke 18. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus kept that promise to Paul, and you see it in these verses here. Paul's life is now full of new friends. There's all these people in his life now that love him, that come alongside and minister to him and with him, and that he loves and, and is so grateful for. These are people that he would not, wouldn't have known apart from Christ. 
These are people who have brought such incredible joy and strength into his life, and he would have never met them had God not first taken hold of him on the way to Damascus. So Paul's beginning to see, you know, and to say to them, to to sort of suggest to them in these farewells, don't forget that as you live out the Christian life, you do so in the company of others who are also living out the Christian life. You know, as you're thinking about things that have to be put off in your life, your brother and sister in the Lord, your brothers and sisters here are also in the same place and are seeking God's grace and trying to grow in Him and trying to learn to praise Him, that you're doing that in good company. And that if you look around you, what you'll see is constant living proof that the grace you're praying for in your own life is being given all around you. And that spurs you on. I hope that you're learning to see that, that even in your own weaknesses, you wonder sometimes, am I ever, am I growing? And you're asking God for grace, and then you look over to your other fellow believer, and you see how kind and gracious God's been and how they've been growing to realize, oh, yeah, God is at work. He's at work in her. He's at work in him, so I can trust him to be at work in me as well. And that's what you see in this list of, uh, of strange names here. Uh, you can go down through the list. You'll have to go elsewhere in the New Testament to track down some of the backstories, which are really, really great. But basically what you find is that here's all these people who have been saved by Christ, who used to be at odds with one another, but now they're united together. They used to be hostile, but now they, they love one another and they're working together and they're growing in Christ. Divisions have been broken down. And this is all the result of God's grace, right? Which is where Paul leaves us in the last verse. Verse 18. And through Paul, that's the Lord's last word for you and for me too. Grace be with you. You see there in verse 18. I, Paul, he's been dictating this letter. But at this point, he says, uh, give, me that, give me that pen. I'm going to sign it myself. And he writes his own name. And as he writes it, he can see the chains that, that bind his arms together for the cause of Christ and the gospel. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Pray for me. Grace be with you. There he was in chains under house arrest in Rome because of the gospel. So he asked them to remember his chains. He asked them to pray for him. But the last note in this song is the note of grace. Paul began the letter with the announcement of grace and peace that come from God to sinners who belong to Christ by faith. Now he leaves them on the same note, leaves you and me on the same note with this word of promise that God's grace is able to sustain you all the way to the end. God's grace is with you. God is with you graciously. The God who is with you is the God of grace. How many ways can we put it? Grace be with you. God's grace will keep every one of you who belong to Christ. And this is really the heart and soul of the letter. It's only by grace that we stand in Jesus Christ. It's through Christ alone that sinners enter the kingdom and continue to live out the life of the kingdom. It's only the perfect obedience of Christ that can be accepted by God in the place of your disobedience. It's only the infinite value of Christ's death 
that can satisfy the wrath and justice of God that you deserve because of your original sin and all the actual sins that have come from it. Only the, only the cross of Christ will do. Only the spirit of the exalted Christ can bring dead sinners to life and renew in them the image of the living God. It's by grace that we enter into fellowship with God in Christ. It's by grace that we grow up and mature in Him. And it's by grace. It's by grace that one day we will stand. And it is coming. The day is coming when we will at last stand before God spotless, blameless, no reproach, no wrinkle in the garment, but pure and radiant, not to your praise, right? But to the praise of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And so as we leave this letter for now, let's leave remembering Paul's reminder that came earlier. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Let's pray.